You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Uh, Today, I'm really excited to play an interview I did with Dr. Stephen Boyce. Uh, Stephen has a lot of his degrees in textual criticism, gospel reliability, things of that sort. And he spends a majority of his ministry defending uh, the traditions of who wrote the gospels, such as, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is that simply tradition or is that a fact? And I think he's doing a wonderful job of defending the gospel reliability against a lot of the modern New Testament criticism that has really impacted our generation. So you're going to hear us talk about people like Bart Ehrman and can you trust the gospels, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, And specifically, we're going to talk about things like, was Matthew the first gospel? You know, a lot of times you'll hear that Mark was the first gospel. Was Matthew written in Hebrew originally? We even talk about the Gospel of John, and why is it more detailed than the synoptics? We talked a lot about the Church Fathers and the date of Revelation. Is it pre-70 AD or is it post-70 AD? Uh, It makes a difference in what eschatological view you're going to fall down on. It really does uh, matter. I think Stephen makes a really good case for his view. Overall, I hope you find this conversation faith-building. I know it was personally faith-building for me because... We look at the gospel authors, and you know what? They were real men with real feelings in a real hectic, crazy context, and they were tactful about the way they did things, and I'd never really thought about it before. It really made the gospels come alive for me, and so, again, it was very increasing to my faith, and I hope it's the same for you. Thank you for listening. Well, I'm honored to have Dr. Stephen Boyce on the show to discuss the reliability of the Gospels and some of the theories of why and how we have the material that we do. Um, I really want to point my listeners to your show, Stephen, and uh, for them to get a deep dive into all these things. But I thought we would do a broad overview of a lot of the topics you've been covering on your podcast that's called Facts and your Explain International work. Uh, Before we do that, Stephen, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your education, and congrats on the marriage, by the way. Uh, how's it? How did it all come together, man? Oh, I have no idea how all that came together. It was certainly of the Lord. Never was it planned at any time on our end. It, the, the timing of it was was uh, of the Lord, and it's been an exciting adventure. Uh, now having to readjust again to married life and things like that, it's it's fun, but it's new, and then it's also difficult because you're having to learn habits sure. and. Like who likes to sleep on which side of the bed? You know, those kinds of things like <laughs> yeah. what annoys them in the morning, what annoys them at night. You know, I, I'm probably the most annoying person ever to live with. So no, God bless I, my I, wife. I, I that. take that crown. <laughs> <laughs> but no. Yeah. So I am a apologist currently with Explore Christianity. I've been on multiple, multiple podcasts uh, doing different discussions and shows and work very closely with Samuel Neeson based out of Malaysia um, with explain, uh, explain, uh, international. And so you got explore Christianity, which is kind of a sister ministry to explain international. Uh, but I'm solely based currently out of explore Christianity. And, uh, so most of my podcast work goes on there for their YouTube channel, but I take my podcast work of just the audio and put it on a, 
um, called Facts. Uh, so you can go on Spotify or it's on Apple. I, I, it's on multiple platforms. I can't even keep up with them anymore. Uh, but you could find it. It's called Facts, F-A-C-T-S. It is a acronym for Fathers, Apocryphal, Canon Text, and Scripture. And so that's pretty much where most of my focus was uh, during my seminary work as well as my doctoral work and still is. Uh, I particularly focused in my doctoral work during the program on the Gnostic Gospels. I uh, wrote most of my research on the Gnostic Gospels. The talking trans- Cross. Talking Cross, yeah. <laughs> uh, Gospel Peter, which I actually have my own translation of uh, online. Uh, so that's available to be read as well. If you want to read my translation of it. Uh, and I did a lot on the four gospels as well, of course. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Canon text, um, is one of my favorite things to study. Still do love it. Uh, doing a lot of work, uh, currently on kind of in the background on the book of Esther, uh, because there's so many different versions of Esther looking at the different Greek text version versus the Hebrew, uh, being a shorter text. So examining that currently, and as the group, Explore Christianity, is studying the authorship of Torah, as well as its intrinsic reliability. So uh, you'll probably see a lot more coming out on that. Uh, debates, do all kinds of different debates. Just I think a few months ago in January, I debated Dr. Richard Carrier on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, I think John Beasley and I are debating uh, Dr. Let's see. I'm trying to remember who all my debates are. So we're doing slavery next. So slavery is in June uh, with Dr. Josh Bowen and his guest. And so we'll be a two on two debate there. But most of my work is is particularly in those areas dealing with issues of the scripture with atheism. I've debated multiple Muslims on the Quran. So we I do a lot of work on the research and the history of the Quran versus the New Testament. And I'm really enjoying getting into the Old Testament side of things more. I, I've had so many years of letters and writings to keep to myself, like, let's get back to this. I need to get back to this. And so I'm finally getting back to some of that Old Testament stuff, because I think the Old Testament canon is also under attack. I think the New Testament ta- canon will always be under attack, but oh, there's yeah. new punches being thrown at the Old Testament. Uh, things like Moses is a myth, and I mean, everything's a myth now. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, getting into the research there, particularly of mosaic authorship, the last chapter of Deuteronomy uh, is a big, big one that's used. So we're we're doing a lot of work, a lot of research, got a whole team doing that. So we're excited to share some of that information. But that's pretty much what I'm doing. Uh, did my dissertation on Codex H, which is a manuscript in Jerusalem, which contains most of the earliest uh, witnesses of church fathers and writings, such as the Didache, which is one of the first and only complete copies of the Greek Didache we have. Um, first, uh, first Clements in there, second Clements in there, Epistle of Barnabas, seven original letters of Ignatius, you know, all, all of those are in there. Did uh, my dissertation work on, on those texts, comparing them, doing the tetracritical work compared to the New Testament and the Septuagint when they quote them. So that was probably one of the most exciting things I ever did. Honestly, I enjoyed it. There wasn't really a day I ever sat down. I was like, man, I really don't want to do this, but I need to. I actually enjoyed sitting down and doing that research. Uh, each day I had to work on it all year, one whole year of doing that. So, Well, I don't know what planet you and I are from, but those things excite me just as much. I love, <laughs> I love the geekiness. And again, I don't mean that as a pejorative. It just, I, I am so interested in old dead saints and what they wrote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, There's something but, to that. It really yeah. is. 
And and I I'm, I was you know we were talking earlier before the the show about you know I'm kind of from the vein of uh, doc, Dr. James White, the King James only controversy. Uh, really mm-hmm. a big fan of Dan Wallace, and uh, I actually really like his Bible by the way, the the NET. And uh, I you know I I don't read Greek. This is not I don't have a doctorate in any of this. This is not my wheelhouse, but I really love to research it and listen to people like you. So. You know, a few years ago, what sparked all this in me is I was in a bookstore and I started talking with a young man around my age about Jesus and the Gospels because we were in the Christian section. And he was very proud to inform me that he once had faith like me. (laughs) Uh, but, But someday I'll understand that none of it is reliable. And I, I stood in shock and I asked him, uh, man, how did you come to those conclusions? What am I missing here? And he then started singing the praises of, you can guess, Bart Ehrman. Uh, <laughs> copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And yeah. I immediately knew what I was dealing with. I, I, I didn't know a whole lot about textual criticism at that time, but I knew enough about you know the King James only stuff and Bart Ehrman that I was dealing with a young man who maybe was in a crisis of faith at one point, and Bart Ehrman kind of pulled out the rug under him. And it seems to me, as much as I actually like Bart Ehrman and his personality, it's kind of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems to me that others like him and himself have, have poisoned a generation with half-truths and exaggerations about yep. the Gospels. Because not everything he says is wrong. I mean, we acknowledge right. a lot of that. But has it been your experience as well? You know, what what do you think of this whole, you know, the last few few, few years of people just leaving the faith over reliability issues? Yeah, it's, it's it's a major concern. It's one that our team at Explore has talked about in depth. I mean, hours of in-depth conversations because we've all wrestled with things. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, Dr. Ehrman, as much as I respect a lot of his scholarship, like, like I mean, honestly, his, his teaching, I had to take some of his recorded classwork for my classwork, mm-hmm. inspired me to do the dissertation I did. Um, in fact, when I've, I've interacted on the side with him a few times and my statement to him was about Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians, because one of the things that he was pushing was actually to dismiss the Bible. And what the Lord allowed from that was for me to explore Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians for a large period of time in my doctoral work. And it actually came to prove him wrong in some of his <laughs> theories about the New Testament. And uh, when I interacted with him, I sent him a message. His response was that I brought up a good point, and then he made some side statement uh, trying to explain it away. And and I actually walked away reassured that, you know what, I I think that what I've always believed about Dr. Ehrman is that he's a really nice guy. He's a great speaker, uh, very persuasive in his arguments, but like you said, he doesn't really give you the full truth. He gives you a partial truth or says things that are in the ballpark, but mm-hmm. there's another viewpoint that he doesn't really give credit to. Nor does and, he seem to want you to know about it at all. He makes the statement a lot, the consensus of scholars, which kind of annoys Where, where are me they at? I, yeah, I want to <laughs> see the consensus. And the thing is, and, and we teach our guys that we're training in apologetics that explore the very same thing, like, don't use numbers in your favor when it comes to like, well, the more scholars agree with us. Well, that'll always change. I mean, because, you know, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, the consensus of scholars for almost 1800 years of church history accepted the four original gospels that we have in their authorships. 
So, I mean, the consensus is constantly changing. So don't go with the consensus as an argument for facts. Uh, that's not the way that works. But we have seen this generation is a very skeptical generation, and rightfully so. I mean, I, I remember for an entire year, and I've told this story in testimony a few times in churches, that I, I didn't even touch the book of Second Peter. Like, I, I refused to preach from it, read from it, memorize from it, or, or give credit to it in a cross-reference way, because I was not confident it was canon. Um, and it took a whole year of wrestling that out before I— the simplest argument that actually, I think it was Dan Wallace uh, had posted somewhere about it. I can't remember everything about it other than I was like, man, maybe I should look into that a little bit more. And within a few days of the simple concept, it, it things started clicking. So it took me a long time to get through those things. And But I'm thankful in the sense of I question things and that I didn't just say, well, I mean, that's just the way I've been taught and that's the way I was raised. No, I actually have a, my own perspective. And even in some of the ways I was taught, I don't agree with uh, the way I was taught. We may come to the same conclusion, but we certainly wouldn't take the road, same road to get to it. Um, so it's been a it's been really a, a time of exploring and investigating and finding out by conviction what is true. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful for guys like Dr. Ehrman who actually make us challenge, who actually challenge us to investigate. I think he's been answered on his copies of copies of copies. I uh, think yeah. that his exaggeration of that has been answered. My good friend, Dr. Elijah Hickson and Dr. Peter Gurry wrote Myths and Mistakes, New Testament Textual Criticism, answering both claims like those, as well as claims as Christians who exaggerate to benefit us. Uh, they kind of squashed two uh, fallacies through that. And they brought in multiple guys. I'm a good friend of mine in the first chapter, Timothy Mitchell talked about how the work of transmission took place of a text in the first century and into the second century, dismissing a lot of the things that, uh, Ehrman has claimed. So if your audience hasn't checked out that book and they're interested in textual criticism or finding out what's true in it, miss the mistakes of new Testament textual criticism did a wonderful job of of really dismantling a lot of those exaggerated arguments. Well, I'll have to pick that up as well, because that that really interests me. Um, you know, personally speaking, I, I've watched hours and hours of Ehrman and refutations and debates and things like that. And it, I find it interesting that um, some of the things Dr. Ehrman has said, I, I don't, I'm not trying to sound puffed up or prideful, but like actually didn't really shake me when like when he says that, John um, purposely made Jesus, uh, you know, be slaughtered with the Passover lamb uh, the, to, to make it more, you know, uh, theological. I, I'm, not, mm-hmm. I'm not super convinced of that, and I also don't really buy the thesis that the synoptics, Jesus is just completely human and there's nothing there, and John is the one who, you know, makes him have divinity. I, I never thought those things were convincing, and, you know, like you said, uh, the consensus will change. If I'm not mistaken— wasn't there somewhat of a consensus that the Gospel of John was really, really, really late until we found uh, a manuscript in the last hundred years of it that actually put it back to the first century? Yeah, so there was a theory that was going around that, um, I think it was Bauer mm-hmm. in in Europe, who theorized that John was something that was forged in the late second century, and then finding manuscripts like P52, which could be anywhere from 25 to 50 years before his hypothesis pretty much dismissed that in, in itself. Um, 
not, there's many more reasons outside of that to dismiss his hypothesis. But that, that's where a lot of like um, I, I know even Dr. Carrier and Dr. Price, who have engaged both with in debate and discussion, place John's gospel in many cases late second century. I still don't know how they can make that argument. But yeah, there, there's no doubt that those kind of theories are dismissed just on discoveries. And right. I don't know if it was a full consensus. It certainly wasn't a consensus across the, the nation. But Germany started leaning towards some of the theories that were coming out because it was popular. And uh, it was it. And he he built a case for it. And they thought it was academic enough not to dismiss. But one little fragment dismissed all of it. So, I mean, that that happens frequently and that's why again i don't buy into the well let's just go with the consensus of people over here it's like well but that you might Follow look dumb science, by the time Stephen. that's over with yeah science yeah <laughs> science the ever-changing science which i'm all for but right some things we we just have to be a little bit more careful with than than running away with new theories that come out in academia well, I, I'm sorry to bring up that random topic. If you can't tell, I listened many times to Dr. Michael Kruger's lectures about these things. Yeah. I, I now speak German because of him, because he's like, what was the Sitzenleben? And I'm like, huh? And it's like, what was the context? What was the situation? And then, you know, Q and all those things that we might get into a little later on. But uh, that just kind of popped in my head randomly. But, you know, on to something that Christians can really, um, really take interest in, uh, Stephen, when I first started educating myself in gospel and textual studies, I was under the impression that, and, and even from Michael Kruger, uh, that Matthew having priority and being written in Hebrew was a myth. I, I was under that yeah. impression. Uh, so uh, my listeners, that's that's the idea that Matthew was written first, and then, and then the gospel was written in Hebrew, and then maybe later on in Greek. But as I've listened to you and, and got deeper, it, it doesn't seem out of the question at all for uh, Matthean priority, and that maybe the church fathers weren't crazy, and he wrote it in Hebrew or Aramaic. How, how, how do you flesh that out? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's been a big thing for me recently, is focusing on Matthew's gospel. I think I just finished two podcasts on it recently before I hit Luke. Is that I think Matthew was the first gospel in Hebrew, Aramaic, one or the other. And, you know, looking at the data from the church fathers, there's a unanimous consensus amongst them that Matthew was first, not that he was first, but if you read the rest of the quote, that it was in Hebrew or an Aramaic dialect. And, and to me, that's an important thing to note because when we're talking about the evidence internally or comparing the text from Mark to Matthew, to me, Mark is definitely first when it comes to who's following who. Okay. And I always felt wrestled down between those two things. Like, well, the evidence internally focuses on a Mark and priority. The historical narrative is that there's a Mathean priority. So mm -hmm. which one do I go with? And I believe that after studying it for the amount of time that I have, I believe that they, those two things can actually be reconciled. If we understand that the, the eyewitness testimonies are in all of the four Gospels. We can understand what the church fathers are saying about Matthew and why the data has shifted to be more of a mark leading the way. And that is because if Matthew did write a Hebrew Gospel, which we don't have, um, there are some late manuscripts like 15th, 14th century that mm -hmm. were, we know who compiled them. 
Um, but realistically, we don't have the documents for the whole Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, although Jerome had made mention of the fact that he had copies from Pamphilius that uh, that compiled the Hebrew text to make the Gospel of Matthew and Hebrew combined that was left in the library of Caesarea, which he had access to. And, um, and he actually tells some of the stories that are in that Gospel, uh, particularly of of Jesus appearing in his post-resurrection to James, the brother, his brother, uh, which we don't have in our Matthew. The only one that actually tells us that happens is Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. But none of the other oh, Gospels, especially the, the Greek Gospels, say that. But that's what the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew says. So, so then I have friends who say, well, the Hebrew Matthew and the Greek Matthew are the same. It's just a translation of the other one. It's like, I, I don't think so. I, I think they're similar and i think that the hebrew matthew we have is matthew's personal eyewitness testimony of the ministry of jesus uh if you want to call it a proto matthean text or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it that's fine i don't think the necessity of q is even needed right if we understand eyewitness testimony because there is the q document that i think people talk about hypothetically for mark and matthew and connecting the dots there it's not a Q document that's MIA that's not talked about by anybody. Um, it is that we have Mark's testimony of Peter right. who preached in Rome and collected his sermons for him, which is, again, there is no dispute about Mark's gospel's origin when you're talking about any of the earliest witnesses from Papias to Tertullian to Irenaeus. Uh, or Clement, wh whoever you're talking about, Mark's gospel was always identified as Peter's, and that it was literally his memoirs, the right. oral tradition of Peter brought to a written text. And it seems like Matthew is following the lead there, which the argument then became, well, how does that work? Because Matthew's first, so how was Mark being the leader? Well, if we understand that the Hebrew Matthew was first, which was particularly published, if we read the fathers carefully, for Jews who were converted out of Judaism, that there was a point where that gospel was not going to be circulated just to a particular people in a particular location. The gospel message needed to go into the nations. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I believe happened, and I, honestly, we have evidence from church fathers who hypothesized what, who translated the Hebrew Matthew into Greek. Um, and I didn't get into that too much in my show outside of showing that the origins internally of Matthew demonstrate Aramaic and Hebrew origin. The right. simple, the simplest and most common reason is it's the only gospel that doesn't quote from the Septuagint. Really? No, yeah, it does not. It makes it's got its own readings of the Old Testament as if it That's did its interesting. own. It has its own translation form to it. It's not like Luke, which is constantly quoting the Septuagint. Um, it has its own translation that is not aligned with any of the Septuagint. Not, not that it's like, oh, wow, those are way off readings. No, right. they, they're not reading the same way. The Greek wording is not structured the same way that Luke's doing it almost verbatim for what we have in the Septuagint. Right. So th that's what th I those are major indicators. It, it came out of the Hebrew origin. And there's multiple Hebrewisms and and uh, terminology and locations that no one else in the world would understand, <laughs> except for a Jew. Right. And uh, Peter, poor Peter, up in Rome, like when he's telling the story, he's having to give explanations about these washings and why the Jews did things for 
for ceremonial purposes. Matthew is just carrying on as if you already know that. And so there's multiple reasons to believe that what the father said is accurate, like spot on what they're saying. But the problem is, is if Jerome is right and he actually had a legitimate copy of the Hebrew Matthew, which we have reason to believe otherwise, and it has stories like post-resurrection appearances to James, I would say that we we can argue that there seems to be a publishing that took place after the Hebrew Matthew, which would have been after Mark was published, that the group of the apostles, in my opinion, came together to issue out from Jerusalem a gospel on account of Jesus's life. Now, the main the main source and probably scribe behind it was probably Matthew. He would have been very academic in his understanding and training. He would have been multi, uh, he would have been, well, I guess he would have known multiple languages as a tax collector. He would have had the ability to know Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Aramaic. He'd have known all those languages because he's writing tax receipts all day long. And it would have required him to be educated in the languages that he's writing tax receipts to. So when we see that, and I demonstrate in my show where you can see his educational background and his understanding of tax laws that the other disciples did not do in his gospel. So what I think happened is, is Matthew took his eyewitness testimony, cooperated it with Peter's through Mark's gospel, because it's already written, mm-hmm. and he used one of, why not? Peter is one of the main eyewitnesses. He's not just a eyewitness. He is the, one of the main eyewitnesses because he was a part of the three I mean, John didn't write his right? No, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's another discussion. Uh, but but Peter is published through Mark a written text of his testimony. So why wouldn't Matthew use Peter? I mean, he was there for scenes like with Jesus in the garden while they fell asleep. Uh, he was there in that discussion with Jesus. He was there with Jesus when he was taken up on the mount and saw Moses. And Elijah Matthew was in there. So naturally, yeah, he's going to keep up with what Peter has to say. He's a star witness. So I think what ended up happening is, is those that remained in Jerusalem as apostles worked together to publish the gospel of the Lord, which is what the Didache, uh, which is the end of the first century, refers to when it quotes from Matthew. There's multiple quotes where it quotes from Matthew, many, and I demonstrated in my doctoral work, there's roughly 29 to 30, uh, potential four or five, but there's really, for more of a concrete way, 25 total quotes, just in the Didache alone, Matthew's gospel. And on two occasions, it says, as it is said in the gospel or written in the gospel of the Lord, it doesn't call it Matthew's gospel, it calls it the gospel of the Lord. And I demonstrate why I think that's the case, because I believe that the apostles we're not writing a gospel. It's not the the names were attributed to the gospel based on its origin, mm-hmm. its writer, its researcher. But the point of the four gospel writers was actually not to draw attention to themselves, and they practiced first century writing when doing a biography. Biographical works of the first century did not involve making you the point. You remain the author, not the person. Even if you're in it, you use code terms. You use uh, statements about yourself or descriptions about yourself with Matthew does uniquely about himself as a tax collector, different from the other gospels. John does for himself different from the other gospels. And Mark does this 
inclusio eyewitness signifying signals all through the beginning and the end of Mark to demonstrate that Peter is the beginning and the ending of this original source. There's so many ways they implemented themselves into the texts to demonstrate who they were and where they received their research from, but they did not include themselves in this biography because it's not an autobiography. So what I believe happened is Matthew took his eyewitness testimony, which would include a material that was not in Mark, such as the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, uh, scenarios that he must have recorded somewhere during maybe while traveling with Jesus, published it later. But then the need for it to go to the churches required it to leave Hebrew and go into Greek. And I believe that's exactly what happened. But I think it took the entire church, uh, the, the church leaders there being the other apostles that survived, published it together for the Lord. It was the gospel of the Lord. It was his gospel. And it was on behalf of the apostles, not just Matthew himself. And the reason I believe this, there's there's multiple places. And I tried to demonstrate this, I believe, in um, some of my programs about the, the fact that there are multiple places where Matthew's gospel seemed to be in history stated as being translated. For example, I, I, I think I have a few of them here. Athanasius attributed the translation of Matthew to James, the brother of Jesus. So that's in his synopsis of sacred scripture. And see, to me, that that, that's an important statement, because if James is back at Jerusalem, my hypothesis has validity. Right. And I don't think it was just James, by the way. I think it was multiple, multiple people that would have been a part of this. But even Athanasius, who is in Egypt, was trying to understand, all right, I have information that James was a part of the translation work. So they're admitting that, yes, the trans, that, that Hebrew version of Matthew was translated, and they're trying to trace it back to individuals. The information of one of the translators that Athanasius received was James the Just. Now, Theodorus potentially attributes it to Barnabas. <laughs> being one of the translators. In fact, um, he states that the relics of the apostle Barnabas were found in Cyprus under a carob tree, and on his breast there was the gospel of Matthew written by Barnabas's own hand. Uh, now, there's much dispute if they're saying that Barnabas wrote the gospel of Matthew as much as translated the gospel of Matthew, but it seems like Theodorus and Athanasius are taking it to, if you would, apostolic men, right. uh, because Barnabas wasn't an apostle as much as he was an apostolic man. But you have James the Just, you have Barnabas being introduced. Uh, I, I mean, even Epiphanius and Theophylact and others in history say that John the Apostle was involved in translating Matthew out of Hebrew into Greek. They said the gospel according to Matthew was written by him in the East with Hebraic language and letters and was published in Jerusalem and translated by John. Now, I don't think John, the, the language isn't anything like John's. Right. But. But but what but what could be true is what they're all trying to tell us is that the Greek version was published from Jerusalem and that John had his hands on it. James just had his hands on it. Barnabas had his hands on it. It it could be. And this is what I think happened, that the apostolic leaders that were still in Jerusalem wanted to publish from the headquarter church there an account of Jesus. And Matthew was going to be the main guy that headed that up through his eyewitness testimony, cooperated with Peter, who is in Rome, 
And again, what, of course they're going to use Peter's testimony there. Um, so you have Peter's testimony. Matthew's going to follow Peter's testimony uh, and publish the information that he and maybe others that were with Jesus remembered. And he's going to put out an account that represented the whole group. I think Matthew's gospel is a group gospel, which, by the way, is why it was the most circulated gospel, even in the first century. Yeah, The Didache quotes it the most. Matthew's gospel, without a doubt, the most circulated gospel early on. And I think that's because it was published and sent out by the apostles. Yes, it was Matthew that I think did the background work. Yes, I think it was corroborated with his eyewitness testimony, but I think he was probably the scribe. But I do think it was a group gospel to send out the message. And so I think that's why there's the confusion. So people say, do you believe in the Matthew and priority? It's like, well, it depends. I believe Matthew is first. I think it was the Hebrew Matthew, then the Greek Mark, then the Greek Matthew, Luke, and then John. I don't think that the Greek Matthew preceded the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't It doesn't work in right. the language at all. Well, uh, shameless plug here. Anytime you say, well, depends. I This is why my show is called Depends on How You Look at It. <laughs> so it's... I, I try to make sure people know. I'm not saying that Christian essentials are depends on how you look at it. No, this is a show. This is an orthodox show that discusses, you know, a lot of in-house, you know, debates. And I, I just find it really interesting. But, you know, perhaps that would account for some of the exact same language shared between Matthew and Mark. Because, yep. you know, for instance, like the Olivet Discourse, uh, both Matthew and Mark say the abomination of desolation. That's a very Jewish term. Uh, but yeah, Luke— Daniel. Yeah, Luke tells you that's just J- Jerusalem being surrounded by Rome, uh, by armies. So, uh, in your opinion, do you think <laughs> who came first when it came to the Jewish isms? Do you think that was Matthew? Well, it, being Peter and Matthew are both devout Jews, right? Uh, it, it it really to me it doesn't matter, uh, but it would be probably Mark on the written side of it. Okay. Because it seems like he's following some of the things with, but again, what Matthew has in the all of the discourse is far, 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 far more detailed than Mark. He has a yeah. Massive dedication to it. Yes. Um. So to me, there were things, but remember, remember this about Peter's testimony. He is preaching a sermon. He's not writing a narrative. Okay. Mark is collecting oral tradition. There are certain things that Peter would not have introduced or said if he was preaching it orally or teaching it orally. He's not going to bring in the details that Matthew would. And maybe Matthew took better notes of that. And and for Peter, he remembered that perspective, just one major thing. Right. Matthew could have been taking notes. He's more of a writer. He's a tax collector. All he does all day is sit at a tax office and write receipts. He'd have been more of a writer. Peter's clearly not a writer or else Mark wouldn't have written it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wouldn't have had Silas write his first epistle for him either. Uh, Peter was probably very elementary in his ability to write, but he must have been one fantastic speaker. Anytime oh, you yeah. see him, he's speaking. Uh, Acts paints him up as a great speaker and an orator. Whereas John, it always says Peter and John said to them, but yet, you know, all you have is Peter's record of staying anything. And John's just, I guess, kind of quietly cheering him on in the back, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> It seems like Peter's definitely the speaker of the group. And Matthew would have been more of a details guy. I mean, if you're a tax collector, you're a detail guy. I mean, every number counts. I mean, he's going to remember the details that Peter wouldn't. 
could it be that the template was Peter brought up the scenario and then you have this massive section where Matthew's like, I've got a whole list of things for that. And he expands on it greater in his purpose and his audience than what Peter did. So I, I don't know who would have originated it. It wouldn't have been as big of a deal, I guess, to Luke, but they're looking at things particularly as Jews from Daniel's prophecies. Right. And uh, they're trying to find consummation in it. And so when they're taking Jesus's teaching and connecting it to the prophetic visions of Daniel, that is great interest to them, especially as it relates to what's going to happen to Israel. Luke is writing predominantly a gospel for Paul that's going to be circulated in the East and in the West, uh, more so to the Greek churches, which honestly, they probably didn't care too much about what happened to the Jews in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and at that point, many of them were scattered around where they were anyway. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been a bit of a big deal to them. So for Luke to spend his time exhausting the, the prophecy side of that for Daniel wouldn't have been as big of a deal to his audience as it would be, say, to Matthew uh, publishing something from Jerusalem. And particularly his first audience was to hit the Jews. And then Peter, who's taking the initial message out to the West. Right. You know, I can I can remember when I first really learned that this was even a thing. <laughs> uh, I, I was raised in the church, and uh, at one point uh, there was a Southern Baptist minister who was very active in my life, and he's gone to be with the Lord now. But uh, he uh, he kind of made it sound to me like God descended and presented the church the King James Bible, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I kind of learned that no, there's actually these things called Greek manuscripts and all that. But uh, something that I guess. It kind of freaks people out that, well, wait a minute, the Gospels say things differently, and why Why does Jesus say abomination of desolation in Matthew and Mark, but in Luke's Gospel he says when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, personally, I'm on the side that I think Jesus probably said when you see the abomination of desolation. That was probably his original words, and I think Luke was making a Gentile-friendly edit. Is that how you would look at that? Well, remember, Luke would have— Luke would have, in my opinion, had access to both Matthew and and to Mark. And okay. with that being said, he knows what they're saying. But you got to remember, intent and purpose of audience does matter. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes, for example, Luke could have been just defining what that is rather than using the exact word Jesus used. Mm-hmm. Or Jesus said both by saying, you will see the city of Jerusalem surrounded with the abomination of desolation. Right. And Jews didn't need to explain that and just left the abomination of desolation as the main point. And Luke went with the description over the term. Okay. Uh, so there's multiple explanations there. See, I don't take a dogma. I wouldn't take a dogmatic on either one. There's other right. options other than contradictions. It's like, well, wait a minute. He knows what Matthew wrote. Like he's he's using Matthew's gospel and Mark's as templates. Why? Because Luke's investigating the eyewitnesses. So mm-hmm. naturally, you're going to take those two in addition to the others that he he learned his information from. Um, so, which seems to be people like 
Cleopas and Mary and James the Just and others that he investigated and questioned around that time. But it could be that Jesus made both the statement and explanation and the Jewish writers that were predominantly like Peter and somebody like Matthew didn't feel like it needed explanation because they understood what the abomination of desolation meant. Luke's audience wouldn't probably have a clue what that meant. They probably right. weren't caught up in the in the ancient uh, Jewish scriptures. So a description was more valid and necessary. Um, there, and it certainly or, or helps he us eschatology nerds in the future. What's that? <laughs> certainly helps us eschatology nerds in the future. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it gives us a little bit more uh, insight. But, but my point is there's there's other viable explanations other than, well, he just thought Matthew blew that one and just went in and fixed it for him or or they just contradict each other. And yeah, there's right. more explanations when you understand the, the the writer who's writing, who's his audience, what was the purpose of his writing, what is the theme of his writing, what is he trying to draw his audience to understand about Jesus himself. When you understand all of those things, you don't want those Gospels to be the same because then you don't get all of the multifaceted understandings of what was being done and said. You want there to be a difference of perspective. If they were all the same, the atheists on the other side would make the dogmatic claim they were conspirators trying to make the same gospel, say the same thing. Like, well, they must have got together to make sure they were all saying the same thing. There would be uh, statements of conspiracy. Yeah. The fact that they're different is good. It shows that they were actually talking to eyewitnesses who had different perspectives of the same events. That's a good thing. Because we believe, I believe, that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimonies. And if the eyewitnesses are just repeating each other, and saying the same exact things and repeating the same exact details, that means they've worked together to conspire and come up with something that's accurate. And it's like, make sure when they ask you about this part, you say <laughs> this line right here. That's that. If that's what the Gospels did, the atheist would have a heyday with that. Oh, yeah. So, like, oh, yeah. to me, distinction and difference and perspective differences is a good thing. That means that they are investigating it through different eyewitness testimonies who are all at the same scene, looking at it from their viewpoint. By not neglecting the other viewpoints, but but bringing it into their viewpoint to share with their respected audience, while also understanding that there is other people, like Luke is investigating multiple people's sources, or Matthew has to realize, you know, Peter was there. And so I need to rely on Peter here. But when it came to this, Peter remembered it from this perspective, but it really impacted me on this way. You know, th that's natural. That's what we would do if we had five people tell what happened if they saw a car wreck take place. We, oh, we yeah. would investigate all five people. The same ending would be in sight. This car hit this car. But the way that looked from different angles and perspectives and viewpoints would have some differences and nuances that the other guy didn't tell. That's what we want in gospel accounts. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm so uh, happy to hear you say nuance. I think the entire world and every single topic in the entire world is lacking nuance right now. And um, really going into, I really appreciate how you've really devoted your life to going into the studies of these men and what were they thinking? How did they do it? How was it put together? <laughs> um, and refuting simply what, in my opinion, is just laziness of just saying, oh, it's contradiction. That's, that's to me, just lazy. Um, and before we move on from Matthew, I just have a quick question. What do you think of the whole Levi-Matthew double name thing? Do you think that's just common? Do you have a, a unique opinion on that? Just on the fact that Matthew's gospel is a little bit different on that? 
Yeah, is is Matthew? He's Levi, the tax collector. Am I or am I yeah. messing up? Okay. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I think uh, he gave himself some code name a little bit. I, I actually discussed that. I think in my last program. Um, I can't remember if it was my last program or the program before, but I I did deal with his name. The other accounts refer to him as Levi. When so when mentioning him in the name of the twelve, right? He's just Matthew, but Matthew gave himself an epithet when he deals with himself. Like in Matthew nine and Matthew ten, only Matthew's gospel gives him the epithet accompanying his name Matthew that can be circled back to the narrative. Like in chapter ten, it says Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, right. James, son of Alphaeus. Chapter nine. As Jesus went from there, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. So anytime Matthew brings himself into the equation, he uses the Matthew name attached to the tax collector. Whereas in those other gospel accounts, they just say it's Levi. Uh, when mentioning in the name of the 12, it's Matthew, but doesn't have the epithet, the tax collector. So they're the same guy. Right. Um the difference is Matthew wanted to include himself in the narrative without making himself known. Like he's not going to steal the spotlight from Jesus, but he includes himself with the epithet by giving himself a description. So, you know, there's distinction and all of Matthew's gospel does it that way. Luke doesn't follow that pattern and Mark didn't use that pattern either that he was following. Why, why did Matthew change it up? Because that's a way to hint of who is writing this by giving himself the epithet um, without flat out saying, I'm Matthew and I'm writing this. Um, right. That would have broke protocol to what he was trying to do in a first century biography. And there's multiple examples of other people doing this. Xenophon did the same thing. Josephus, when he put himself in the stories of the wars versus events he was there for and events he was telling that he wasn't there for, totally different way of writing. Um, so this isn't like, oh, well, the gospels, you know, they didn't just flat out say I'm Matthew and Mark. Why, why not? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, that's not how any of those ancient works did those types of styles of writings back then when dealing with a biography on somebody else's life. Um, so it's not unique to them. Uh, we've made it unique to them, but it's not, but Matthew is Levi, but he makes sure to make a distinction from the other gospels who introduce him based on his name in the epithet, and he calls himself Matthew. He doesn't call himself Levi. Uh, he was a Levite, and I think that's probably where that connection is. Ah. Um, so, yeah, so when mentioning him in the name of the Twelve, he's he's Matthew without the epithet. But when he's talking about himself, he's Matthew with the epithet. So I think they're the same guy, for sure. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that insight because, uh, you know, we're, it's kind of foreign to – 21st century people, but uh, it was common to have different names in different contexts. So uh, I think that is pretty interesting. Well, moving on, uh, you know, church history tells us that the Apostle John lived well into old age. Um, it's often thought he wrote his material much later in life. Uh, although I'm sympathetic to the preterist view of things, uh, I really am not sure I can justify John's writings before 70 AD in light of the evidence. Um, especially when we're talking about revelation, uh, you talked about how, um, in, in your, in your episode of facts, you talked about how John is more open about names and identity than yeah. the synoptics. And I, I really honed in on that because while I had kind of taken that in in passing in my Bible reading, you really brought it out that, you know what, John is really detailed there. Yep. So, um, I really liked the theory and I'd like you to go into it 
that if it's true that John is more open about names and identity and like Lazarus and such as that, if that's true, then the synoptics were possibly protecting people who were really alive at the time of the writing. Uh, and that would suggest that the synoptics are not late date forgeries, but actually written and influenced by eyewitnesses. So could you yeah. better explain the whole debate of, you know, for instance, you know, the naked man and Mark? Uh, a lot of people think that's Mark, but you presented a really interesting that that could be Lazarus without actually uh, um, naming Lazarus. So, sure. Yeah, so I, I believe, and Richard Bauckham deals with this in his work on Jesus and the eyewitnesses, which is, by the way, a fantastic read. Certainly don't agree with him on all of his conclusions, um, but he is a probably alive today the best Johannin guy. Like, okay. his life work is John's writings. I don't agree with him on the author of John. Um, I think he makes a very, very compelling argument. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's right. Um, <laughs> I, I like that he, about you. <laughs> but he is he does believe it's based on eyewitness testimony. OK, he thinks John the Elder wrote it, but I don't uh, think he did. Yeah. I, I don't think he did. But he makes a good argument. If somebody reads his work, you you will scratch your head for for a few days. Um but uh, he introduces the idea of um, protective anonymity. And I, I ran with that concept a lot because the more I thought about it, the more I saw it in places, particularly with Mark. It seems to me that Mark and John were distantly connected um, at times. It's almost like Peter and it's almost like John tried to. Um, carry on this internal fun rivalry with Peter. The one that you see at the end of John's gospel, like Peter's like, well, what about him? Yeah. And Jesus says, well, what difference does it make? If I have him live throughout the rest of the age, what difference does it make? Like you follow me. Like there's this, uh, <laughs> Peter's presentation of himself through Mark's account is a lot different, not different in the sense of contradiction, but there's another story to Peter that John wants to tell everybody about. And it's almost like, it's almost cruel. It's almost like he waits till he's dead to do it. <laughs> um, but like, it, it's, it's kind of like we do it with our siblings. Like you just oh, wait yeah. till you're older and I'm going to tell your, your future wife what you did, you know? Um, but at the same time, the writers at the time of, Mark and Matthew and Luke, which I all believe are pre-70. I think they're all in the 60s, if not late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s in that region by the time they're written. What I believe took place is that those apostles, many of them were still alive, particularly. And they were, or, or not just apostles, it could have been individuals that were, were involved in scenes of the Gospels. And I believe what they were doing was protecting quite a bit of uh, those people by not putting their names. P Peter's an important one to remember, because one of the things that we you know, discover about him is from John's Gospel that is not told by the other three, is that in the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, He's the one that's hacking the guy's ear off. I mean, right. he took Malchus's ear and chopped it off. And, you know, FYI, he wasn't aiming for the ear. Uh, he was yeah. aiming for his head. <laughs> so, 
uh, he must have been so dark or he was just a bad shot uh, at swinging a sword. He got the side of the head and chopped the ear off. Jesus did, I believe, showed a major act of mercy to Peter by healing Malchus. But what you find is, is that no one mentions specifically the name of Peter or Malchus. Yeah. They mentioned the servant of the high priest. They mentioned one of the disciples did it. Now, naturally, Peter's not going to tell us that he did it while he's alive because it's attempted murder. Um, <laughs> so that's admittance. If you put that in a written document that's circulating, especially if it's originating from him. And so I think that what Matthew was doing, as well as Luke, was respecting Peter by not putting his name in there. Uh, if he initiated the story to begin with, they're respecting him. And I think they're protecting him from further problems by mentioning Malchus and by him. Now, by the time John's writing, which I think is probably in the 80s, mm -hmm. uh, writing his gospel, I should say, is in the 80s. When he's writing his gospel, Peter's dead. Uh, Peter was executed by Nero right around the same time Paul was, around 67, 68. And when he was martyred, killed, protecting him is not necessary anymore. So unveiling his name mm -hmm. and unveiling the culprit by which he chopped the ear off, his <laughs> name is not as big of a deal. In fact, P John tells us more about this when you deal with Peter at the campfire. So we know that he sat there and denied three times. But what John tells you is that there was a little bit more to the story that Yes, he was afraid of being spotted and dragged out with Jesus. But there was also another fear. It wasn't that he was just being associated with Jesus. It was being associated with Jesus at a particular event. And so what he does in John 18, 25, and in the rest of that passage there, he, he really deals with the fact that Peter was at the campfire where the relative of Malchus, whose ear was chopped off, was also at the campfire. And that individual who's related to Malchus said, weren't you with him? I, I, I saw you with him. And that's when Peter blew up and said, and cursed. And said, I don't yeah. know. I, it was when the relative of Malchus pressed him. Why? Because he didn't just see him with Jesus. He saw him with a sword trying to protect Jesus, chopping off his cousin, brother, whoever it is, his ear his relative's ear. And so he was not just afraid of association. He was afraid of attempted murder. That's what led him to the rage. So John unveils that for us, that Peter didn't unveil for himself, naturally, and others protecting him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention that scene at all with Peter's name or Malchus's name. John is the only one who does that. He does that in other places too. Like, with Mary, for example, Mary who anointed Jesus' feet. I, lo I love how in John's gospel, in chapter 11, it says, the one who anointed Jesus' feet. But it doesn't tell you the story until chapter 12. Right. But John's assuming you already know that. Why? Because John's assuming you already knew the other accounts. So you've already read the story. The problem with that is, is, is Mark's gospel makes this bold proclamation that says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's like, man, that's a great story. Everywhere the gospel goes, what she did in anointing Jesus' feet will be told with the gospel message in honor of her. One problem. 
Who's her? (laughs) Like, man, the decency to tell you who she was. Like, what's going on there? Yet her name isn't even mentioned in Matthew. Matthew didn't even have the decency to tell you. How about Luke? Why not Luke, right? Nope, Luke didn't tell you either. They just told you her name would be traveling everywhere with the gospel, but they didn't even tell you the name it was. John does. And John assumed that those who read Matthew, Mark, and Luke already knew who she was too. But he discloses her and what she did in chapter 12, but discloses her as the one who did it in chapter 11. Well, why is that significant in, in, in not unveiling that name for them, but he does it in his? And I think he was protecting Mary because she was the sister of a wanted man. In that same chapter, in chapter 11, Jesus raised him from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> there was kind of a bounty put on Lazarus at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, they wanted him dead as much as Jesus. He was a walking, living, breathing miracle. Yeah. He was so dead, his body stunk. I mean, they were ready to put, <laughs> I mean, they really need to put him to death. But I believe, uh, going back to what you said, that they were protecting her by association with her brother because he was a wanted man. And I believe in Mark's gospel, he is the wanted man um, that went out naked. Now, think about this. Only two people were seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and the garments of this man who took off naked when they grabbed his garments. He was like, forget the coat, I'm gone. He ran out. Why wasn't Peter seized? Why wasn't John seized? Why wasn't James seized? Why wasn't Bartholomew? Like, none of these guys were seized. They only came after two people who were seized in the garden. Jesus, the primary, and then there was the second guy. Why the second? Who else was wanted to be put to death? It wasn't the disciples. Not yet. There was only two people that we know of, thanks to John, who were people that were the Jews who the Jewish high priest servants were the ones coming out there, wanted dead Jesus and his living miracle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, some have hypothesized, well, that was Mark telling himself the story. The problem with that is Papia said that that he neither heard Jesus nor knew him. He learned everything he did from Peter. So I don't think it was Mark at all. Um, But Mark left a lot of people anonymous for protection in that scene. Peter, Malchus, and I believe Lazarus. I think Lazarus was the guy with them in the garden, and he took off uh, naked, um, and Peter didn't disclose him. Uh, now, so I, I do think that there are scenes like that where John is no longer needing to protect them. They're dead. John's trolling uh, them. <laughs> he's trolling them. It's like, finally, I can finally yeah. tell everyone. This was hilarious, and now I can finally talk about. No, I, that, I'm just being silly. But no. uh, listeners, for for the sake of of the passage here, this is Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 51. It says, yeah. "And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." So you kind of get this mental image of the guards only having, you know, like a like a garment in their hand, <laughs> some dude just <laughs> running down the hill. Yeah, so running I mean, naked. That's, yeah. So, but like, I mean, imagine how terrified and apparently Lazarus, you know, was a young man, you know, it's probably a young man about to be taken in because Jesus, you know, raised him from the dead and he's going to pay for it now. That's a very believable scenario. And just thinking about it from a 21st century perspective, it feels like John is the cliff notes for us people that live 2000 years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he felt like, 
his mission was to tell the full story and the full end of the story of what Jesus' life and ministry is all about. And again, he had no reason to protect Peter at this point. He's dead. He has no reason to protect these others. They're probably dead. Mary's probably dead by the time he's writing his gospel. And he's unveiling their name and he's telling their story. It's not a bad thing. It's not that Peter wouldn't have necessarily wanted that to be shared at some point. But hey, like you, you don't want a document circulating with your admittance in it. Um, <laughs> again, I think Jesus spared Peter with an act of mercy by healing the ear. And then he turned and rebuked him. Those who live by the sword die by the die sword. By the sword. Uh, yeah. So uh, Jesus, I think, spared Peter by healing Malchus's ear particularly. But yeah, you see that in these scenes. John does that frequently uh, in his gospel. And he tells a different perspective of Peter's life. And, and and also doing that, demonstrating who is writing which gospel. Peter's gospel, Mark, starts with Peter's the first one on the scene, and then his brother. But his brother is automatically attached to Peter. So you have Simon Peter and, and Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. So it starts with Peter, and even when he brings Andrew on the scene— he ends it back with Peter, demonstrating the priority, the dominant figure of eyewitness testimony in that scene, and letting you know where the source of eyewitness is coming from by introducing the first person on the scene of the apostolic group was Peter. Um, yeah, obviously you have that scene there. It's Peter, then Andrew. But then you go to John's gospel, and Peter is not the first one on the scene. In fact, Andrew went and got Peter. Yeah. Um, Andrew's giving credit. And then there were two other disciples that are not named. But if you follow the end of the book, you'll find out that one of them was John. Uh, he kind of hides himself in there unnamed. But what you find is, is John is one of the first. He is the first to introduce, be introduced to Jesus with Andrew. And he's the last one to speak in the gospel. Whereas in Mark's gospel, Peter is the last one that's mentioned. In fact, the, the message of the angel is, go and tell the others and tell Peter. Uh, why tell Peter? Why None of the other gospels do it that way. Uh, because Peter is the source of that gospel. Um, John ends with his story. Mark ends with Peter's story. And so we see these come together in their written form. It's beautifully, majestically done uh, same thing with Luke when he's telling you the story of the two disciples on the road of Emmaus. It's not that he didn't know the second person. Why did he name one and not the other? Because he's giving credit and credibility to the eyewitness that he learned that story from. Who did he get it from? Not the second guy, but Cleopas. So he silences the name of the second guy and only mentions Cleopas's name, giving you precedence to let you know that I received this message and, and information from him. Cleopas is the eyewitness source behind that scene that told Luke. And the way to give him credit is to leave the other guy silent. And it's also ironic that in John's gospel, the two people, the unnamed, which you find later is John, uh, if you follow the parallels of chapter one of the very last chapter, but then you find Andrew's there. It, and it's so ironic that the church fathers say that it was Andrew's idea to motivate John to write the story. It was Andrew and Thomas who were a part of moving and motivating John to actually tell the narrative that he ended up writing or having written for him, I think, uh, by the scribes in Ephesus. And isn't it ironic 
that if that testimony of the church fathers is true, that John mentions Andrew before Peter and him and Andrew together. Why? Because Andrew is the one that came to John and said, I think you should do this. It was Andrew's idea. That's and so what did he do? He gives Andrew first. And who is the only writer? Who's the only writer who brings Thomas on the scene the most and gives the story of where Thomas says, I will not believe unless I touch the nails of the prince's hand. Who's the only one that said that? And then he did it. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God, the only writer to do that is John. Why? Because Thomas was also behind John writing that gospel. Him and Andrew both were behind it based on the based on the testimony of the church fathers. And so you have Thomas's eyewitness view. You have Andrew's eyewitness view. And you have John's eyewitness view in John's gospel. And you can see that actually, as the fathers say, this person motivated this person and discussed with this person to do it. You can see that those people that are pushing John to do it, their stories were told in John's gospel, but not in others. Yeah. And so I, I was I always wondered beautiful. why John seemed to highlight a lot of disciples that we really don't hear anything about in the synoptics, but that that makes a lot of sense. Now, is there any is there any pushback to say, well, mate, what is there a church tradition that Thomas and Andrew were dead before the 80s or 90s AD? Is there anything like that? Not particularly. They're pretty unanimous on the fact that they were. I was trying to find some of the quotes. I might actually have it. Um, the Muratorian fragment, which is end of the, well, it's about 170 to 200. Uh, actually has that uh, on the same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should narrate all things in his own name as they called them to mind. What marvel is then that John brings forward these several things so constantly in his epistles, also saying in his own person, what we have seen with our eyes, we heard with our ears, our hands have handled, that we, we have written. For thus he professes himself to not only be the eyewitness, but also the hearer, and beside that, the historian of all the wondrous facts concerning the Lord in their order, which John does. John actually does an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus and the miracles because he starts by saying this was the first miracle. He's the yeah. only one that does that. So the Muratorian fragment gives credit to uh, the fact that uh, it says with his fellow disciples and bishops who treated him, they said that he should fast for a space of three days and recount the things that he learned. Because remember, these guys are dying. Their oral tradition goes with them. Peter's right. life was in jeopardy in Rome. Get it in writing, he's going to die. Paul left his testimonies in his epistles and in, through Luke's gospel. And uh, and so on that same night while they're fasting, Andrew went to John and said, dude, you should, you, you should do this thing. And uh, so we see that in the Muratorian fragment. And, and so... And, and then there's other examples, again, where they do come around and tell John, like, you should get involved. You see the involvement of Thomas. It does seem to believe that people that during that time, these were the last living apostles. Uh, John would have outlived them. Again, I think this is in the 80s. OK. Um, I, now, there are some very late. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember who said it was after the apocalypse. Um I think I actually might have that uh, quote somewhere, but there are those that believed it happened after the apocalypse. I don't. Uh, I think the apocalypse is the last one, but they were all saying the same thing. John was very old when mm -hmm. he was writing these things uh, in his nineties, even. So John's gospel was probably in the eighties, probably wrote his epistles around. Oh, I, first of all, I actually believe he only wrote first John. 
Um, I think yeah, he wrote First John, John's Gospel, and the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. I think he wrote First John and John around the same time, and I think he wrote the Apocalypse at last uh, toward the end of his life, uh, around ninety six A.D. Um, but yeah, so I mean, to me, John's Gospel is important, but he tells the story of the others because, according to the church history, they they are still alive, and uh, they were actually behind motivating him to do it at that time i i think that's just so fascinating and you know obviously this is going to be my faith bias here but it does seem like revelation would be the last work because you know that's should be yeah it should be and it's inspirationally speaking it's the revelation of jesus christ i mean this is how it's going to wrap up you know it, it would be weird for me to think that the gospel of john had not been put together by then but that that's just an opinion um you know, you you mentioned you believe in two Johns, and and not that you believe it like it's a some some possible fact out here, but there there really is a John the Elder and John the Apostle, and the Church Fathers seem to distinguish between them. And I, I remember you on your show that you kind of have a non dogmatic opinion that John the Elder wrote second and third John, mm-hmm. and yep. John the Apostle, the one who walked with Jesus, wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation. So I'm a open-minded person when it comes to inspiration and having authors in our New Testament that might not be, you know, really well known to us. So can you explain why uh, you don't believe that the apostle wrote all the works attributed to the name John? Well, yeah, I mean, to me, there's, uh, Jerome kind of summarized some of this in his writing when he talked about him. He mentions that, uh, in fact, I probably have the quote up here from Jerome I can read. I, I think Jerome's actually learning from Papias, okay. uh, because Papias, uh, Papias seems to distinguish him. Mm-hmm. But there was John the Apostle, which Irenaeus said he heard John the, Papias heard John the Apostle preach. But he learned most of his eyewitness testimony from Aristion and John the Elder, or John the Presbyter, which Papias seems to make a distinction of. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be that there was this understanding that there were two Johns. Remember, there was more. There were more people that followed Jesus than oh, just yeah. twelve men. Like uh, he had. I mean, even when he sent out Luke's gospel, seventy, or depending on which text of the New Testament you're reading, seventy-two. Yeah. Sent him out two by two. Um, according to what we have from what Papias is saying and others, two of those would have been another John, John the Elder, which John's a common name. Out of 72 people, you're going to probably have a lot. Even within the 12, you have a lot of the same names. You have you have two Judases. You have two Jameses. You have two Simons. I mean, and that's just with 12. So, <laughs> I mean, who's to say? But uh, according to uh, Papias, that some of the living abiding voices that were with Jesus were Aristion and John the Elder, which he learned from. So that kind of started some of the discussion. And I think uh, Jerome piggybacked on that, uh, piggybacked on that a little bit. Because he talks about how he wrote his epistle, um, but then he says, um, the other two in which the first, the elder to the elect lady and her children, and the other, the elder to Gaius, the beloved whom I love in the truth, are said to be the works of John the Presbyter, to the memory of whom another sepulcher shown at Ephesus to the present day. There's something that there are two memorials of that same John the Evangelist. We shall treat this matter in turn. We come to Papias and his disciple. And then he deals with, uh, he particularly tells us that the book of Revelation was done during the time uh, of of um, Domitian. Domitian. Yeah. When he was banned in the island of Patmos, he wrote the Apocalypse, which Justin Martyr and Irenaeus afterward wrote commentaries, which also said 
it was during that same time, um, having been put to death by his axe. But he mentions that there are two Johns, and some have attributed the second and third to John the Presbyter, and that he says that there's actually two memorials for two separate Johns in Ephesus. Um, and, 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 and I, here's the thing, second, third John, he refers to himself as John the elder. He doesn't do that in anywhere else. Yeah. Second, those two were disputed based on authorship issues. Um, none of John's writings were ever disputed. Uh, first John was not disputed. Everybody attributed that to John. His gospel was always attributed to him. His apocalypse was always attributed to him. There is no dispute about those threes authorships when it comes to the earliest parts of the church second third john were disputed now it could be argued that that's due to their size but early on like books like philemon that wasn't disputed at all um jude was disputed for sure and that was a smaller letter but philemon wasn't so i don't i don't think size of the letter dictates automatic well it's dispute because it's hard to trace well no these letters were received by the apostolic churches i think the reason it was disputed is because they had a hard time pinpointing which john did it (laughs) um i don't think it matters because they were both eyewitness uh testimony people who heard and saw jesus and learned his doctrine so whether it's from the hand of john the elder or john the apostle i'm totally fine with either one because it's also consistent with the new testament too there's nothing in there that's really weird you know Uh, no i mean the the doctrine is johannan which but again if if papias learned from both that means aristion and john the elder would have been influenced by john the apostle anyway now some think they're the same guy i got guys on my team that think they're the same guy i don't uh maybe they are i don't really make a big deal out of it not a hill but to die on. But if they are two, if not a hill to die on, <laughs> if they are two separate people, then John the Elder would have been predominantly in Ephesus anyway. Under which apostle, John the Apostle? So some because people say, well, a lot of the theology is very similar. Well, it is, but that doesn't mean anything either. Because if you're influenced by somebody, you're going to share a lot of that idea. I mean, if you read First Clement, which I did a lot of my doctoral work on, he was influenced by Peter and Paul, and it shows. He was very Pauline at times, yeah. uh, in his influence. So, yeah, if you're influenced by an apostle, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of the same ideas and thoughts. But it's interesting to me that Second John, Third John, all refer to himself as the elder. The First John doesn't do that. Um, you could say, well, naturally, gospel. That's a narrative. It's a historic narrative. It's a biography. The apocalypse is a vision. So you can't really use that as comparison. True. Um, and by the way, in the apocalypse, John had no problem mentioning I, John wrote I was this. just about to say, doesn't he say I, John, saw these things on the island yeah. of Patmos? Yes, because he's telling <laughs> a story of his experience. Yeah. Not So John's gospel. So his gospel is a biography. He's using first century technique of biography by including himself through terms like the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved, who laid on his chest. These are terms he's using to tell you who he is. He's the first eyewitness. He's the last eyewitness. He's the first talked about. He's the last talked about. He's doing all the things that you would do in an inclusio eyewitness testimony scene. But in John, but in the apocalypse, totally different because he's, he's not writing biography. He's writing apocalyptic literature of a vision. 
using a lot of the apocalyptic exile languages that he learned from Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and, and Haggai. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's taking sceneries in the Exodus story, and he's bringing to life all those things and consummating all these prophecies of old that were given through visionary form. And so it's, it's his vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So right. he's no problem telling you who he is in that. It's a different style of writing. But in 1 John, he doesn't even tell you who he is at all. Uh, my little children, my little children, that's the closest thing we get. And then he teaches the theology of the love that he learned in his gospel. But there's no dispute about him writing that gospel, even without his, or that epistle without his name. And it could be that he signed his name uh, on the document uh, instead of internally on the, uh, inside the letter itself. But all the churches knew who he was and they didn't dispute. But the elder writes in chapter or in second John and third John, so that, to me, is always intrigued. Again, I, that's my hypothesis. I think that there were two Johns, and I think John the Elder wrote the other, and that's why those were the only two, two that were disputed. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I have found this conversation incredibly enlightening, and uh, I really like picking your brain. And um, I also like your sense of humor. I think we got a lot in common. Um, <laughs> but s- since we're on it, uh, you know, for, for a number of years, I was— I would I would have considered myself in the the preterist camp of things, and by preterist I mean orthodox, not the crazy people that think Jesus has already judged the living and the dead, uh, you know, hyper preterist. But the more I I got into gospel studies and apostle studies and you know what they wrote in their lifetime, I'm not sure I can really place the works of John, especially Revelation, before 70 A.D. You know, you'll hear par- partial preterists like Gentry uh, or Gary DeMar say, well, you know, um, the same guy who said that it was written during the time of Domitian is the same guy that said uh, Jesus was 50 years old. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's a, that's a good point. But I think when you look at the internal evidence of John, I think there's a lot in there that points to a later date. And I, I've always actually been more impressed by the internal evidence of a later date. How do, how yep. do you feel about it? Are yep. you more impressed by the external evidence or maybe just all together both i I think they're consistent both uh i think most people that are are semi-preterists or preterists that take that try to be before 70 ad have a eschatological presupposition they can't let go of sure um i don't think i so so to throw irenaeus out particularly as if he's the only one that said that anyway He's not the only one that said that. Well, that's that's how it's uh, always been presented to me, is that Irenaeus uh, was the only person who said that. That's a shame. Uh, yeah, well, I'm learning something right now. Victorinus, the earliest testimony um, of um, commentary that we have that survived antiquity. Like, that's just that's just not true. Uh, we have multiple attestation. Uh, uh, Jerome himself, even through the documents he researched through Papias and others, clearly understood that it was is after much, much later during the time of Domitian. And so Clement of Alexandria, I mean, th- they all say the same thing. Nobody places it before 70 AD in the church fathers. No, Nobody. Um, they're either silent to it altogether or they state it's during the very end of that time. Irenaeus is going to be quoted because he was a descendant of John's teachings. And what I mean by that is John trained Polycarp and commissioned him to Smyrna. Polycarp trained Irenaeus. So he was a grandson, if you would, of uh, the spiritual nature 
of of uh, John. John's son in the faith would have been Polycarp. His grandson in the faith would have been Irenaeus. Um, just because Irenaeus had a theory about here's the difference. Here's the difference between Irenaeus' statement about Jesus' age and John writing on the island of Patmos during the time of Domitian. John's statement about Jesus' age can't be corroborated with anybody else. Okay. There's n- nobody else. Now, if you have four other church fathers around the same time saying the same thing, we might need to investigate that closer. Okay. He's the only one. So there's two things. One, we don't have the full context of what he said. Probably not the case. Two, that section is not original because we only have copies of Irenaeus. We don't have his original works like anybody else. And that was some mistake in transmission. Maybe. Three, he's misinformed. He was a human. He didn't get everything right. And if we're only going to quote people who get everything right and take them serious, then we don't have anybody to pay attention to because everybody has history anymore, do we? We don't have any. We don't have any history. Church history, Greco-Roman history, uh, Babylonian history, Egyptian history. We don't have any history if we go off of one mistake or somebody got one thing wrong. The difference is in the statement he makes about John, the uh, visionary on the the apocalypse he received there on the island of Patmos during the time of Domitian can be corroborated with multiple sources. So how do we handle a difference? It's like, well, he said Jesus is age, so we don't trust him for this either. Well, that can't be corroborated, and the other ones can be. So what we can corroborate, we do. What we can't, we throw out. That's common sense. Like, um, Because he's a lone island on the Jesus age. He is not a lone island. He is with the rest of the islands when it comes to the apocalypse. So that that argument doesn't work. You're talking about a cooperated matter versus a non-cooperated matter. And you're looking for perfection out of a guy. And I'll take it from a guy who was trained by somebody who spent many, many years with John. Uh, so I'm going to go with Irenaeus, but it's not just Irenaeus. There's more than Irenaeus. The earliest commentaries have that timeline. Uh, the earliest church fathers in Alexandria have that timeline. It is obvious from the external evidence. And then, like you said, internally, to me, it's clear as well, very much so, that it's later. Yeah, I would say the only real compelling argument, and and it's definitely not the temple one, I don't think measure the temple of God is an argument that the temple was standing whatsoever, considering the way the temple is used in the New Testament rarely refers to the actual temple. It refers to us, the church, the body of Christ, things of that sort. But um, I always thought that the 666 argument was compelling as far as, you know, it, it's gematria for Nero Caesar. And there's this one manuscript out there that was, I think, maybe 616 that if you add that up and maybe I think it was Hebrew that it also can get to Nero Caesar. I thought that was compelling. But yeah, I'm not, not going to die on that, though, because I, I still think the evidence outweighs that in a later date. Yeah, Beale dismantles that argument in I'll his commentary. That. Yeah, he dismantles that. That doesn't work. 666 uh, works in correspondence with the three judgments dealing with humanity and its fallenness on all three judgments. The sixth trumpet, the sixth seal, the sixth bowl. The, there's so much behind the number 666 in correspondence to how John was using an apocalyptic literature that has zero to do with Nero or anything like that. And does it work? And and even Beale just, just destroyed that argument. Um, when it comes to the whole temple thing, uh, that doesn't work either. Um, yeah. The temple is God's people, particularly 
uh, in that scene. And, and keep in mind, he is unveiling Old Testament visions that they saw and is consummating it. Ezekiel 40 through 48, major section when he gets to Amen. the temple. Clearly not talking about <laughs> an actual building in Jerusalem at all. I, I completely uh, agree. I so, agree with that. Yeah. That it, That's not the, I think the preterists are wrong there. And I think the futurists are wrong there. Very um, much I, so. I think, you know, I, I believe you and I are on the same amillennial idealist kind of uh, framework here. But personally, personal opinion is, if revelation is idealism, it's so relevant to every generation of churchgoers. You know, the preterist is basically, it's just a history book. And and, and to give a little credit to the preterist, they wouldn't say that it's not applicable, that there aren't, isn't teaching in there. But I, I always felt like these two extremes were missing the major point, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I'm actually teaching through um, apocalyptic literature at my church. I'm on week 11 tomorrow. And uh, we finish up next week, 12 weeks of apocalyptic literature. And we've particularly been studying the genre. Okay. And when the class, because I did Hebrews last semester, and they they all voted. They said, well, let's let's do the book of Revelation. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We are not doing the book of Revelation unless we learn the literature. We Amen. don't learn the literature. There's no point in doing it. So we did apocalyptic literature, and we established what apocalyptic literature is, why John chose through the vision and through Jesus to reveal it to him in this way, going back to the exile language that came uh, as a hope, almost like giving a picture of former prophecy. Prophecy comes first, picture comes second, consummation comes third. And John is bringing all those things together. And just looking at the, the, the idea of apocalypse and the unveiling, the revealing, and why it was used uh, only by him, particularly, there was some scenery where Jesus became apocalyptic at times, or Peter at times. But we studied other works, like we didn't just study. We we studied the apocalypse of Abraham. Uh, we looked at First, Second Enoch. Uh, we examined different apocalyptic um, works that are apocryphal works to examine, like see see how they're using the the, the word see. The see means this, or see how they're using the understanding of a lion. See how they're understanding the of of a leper you see how i understand the of the vision of fire and, and all these things like see how it's consistent through all of jewish literature this is how they use it and this is what it meant that's what john meant so we we spent a lot of time doing that and we're actually going to be doing revelation 20 uh in the great white throne judgment as well as the millennium this week so that's that's this tomorrow so <laughs> Uh, studying the origins of the apocalyptic literature dismisses most of the problems that we have of futuristic views, dispensational views. I completely agree. And I, I, and you know, this is, this is just me talking, man. It actually just drives me insane that nobody will look into it. Um, and it's just assumed that either revelation is, you know, your guide to the apocalypse or it's just all done. Don't worry about it. And I just don't think either of those views works with the way scripture works you right, know right uh well that's, that's stay just tuned my because opinion. uh stay tuned because i've been asked to take all of my material uh that i've been doing in this class and use it for explore christianity's channel so well, i will be tuning uh, in yeah there you go so i will provide all the links and stuff to your show Stephen. i i thank you so much for coming and talking to me today and educating me and my listeners about I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface, but just a little bit about what you do and how really interesting and and for me, faith uh, building this work is. 
I mean, yes. it really has built my Society. faith up in ways that I didn't know that I could believe and trust. And like, I always trusted my Bible. Don't get me wrong, but like having the you know, kind of studying that, hey, these guys were men. They they had real thoughts and feelings, and yeah. they were um, tactful about the way they wrote things. That's really incredible. Um, like Dan Wallace says, we have an embarrassment of riches, and the yeah. gospel writers don't leave out the embarrassing details of that embarrassment of riches. So, uh, Stephen. What what would you leave us with some closing thoughts? What your future plans are? I know you just mentioned we've been go- you're going through apocalyptic literature, um, but is there anything on the horizon we need to be really looking out for? Any debates? <laughs> yeah, I'll be debating slavery soon. Uh, I turned down about three debates this month. And In what context I, of slavery, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, like, does the Bible condone it? Does God oh, condone slavery? Got yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, um, one of the things that I like I said, I've, I've I've turned down. I think two in the last week, three for the month of April. Um, The debate side of it, I enjoy it. There's right debates and wrong debates, and I'm learning to take the right ones. And, um, (laughs) but for me, I I am so excited in a new marriage and starting life with Claire that I have to choose my time very, very wisely. And I love teaching at my church uh, as well. So like apocalyptic literature is not an easy subject. Spent a lot of hours studying that. So when I'm done next week and then I start next semester teaching again, I have all summer and I've got a lot of projects I'm doing. I'm, I'm translating currently my own translation of Esther in the Greek Esther, and that is the extended sections that we have A and B and C, the different scenes of of uh, Esther that are not in our Hebrew translation of our English Bibles. Um, so I'm working on those, translating that, and then I'm going to have some of our Hebrew guys um, do some discussion on it because I actually hold a view that there's a good chance that the original Esther's form is preserved in the Septuagint. Um, but, uh, so I'm working on that and we're also going to be doing a major, and it's going to take a long time to do this. We're going to go through every single book of the Bible, uh, with explore Christianity. And we're going to demonstrate, um, authorship through history and intrinsic, uh, internal evidences. And so right now the whole team is doing the, we wouldn't do each one individually. Some of them are going to be like together, like the Torah or first second Samuel or one book, first second Kings or one book, Jeremiah and Lamentations together, you know, things like that. Well, we're actually going to work on a series where we're actually going to go through every single Old Testament, New Testament book and cover the basis of how we can trace it to a prophet or an apostle and trace its intrinsic, um, claims and teachings to be authentic to that writer and its original audience and that it is divine truth. And so that's going to take a long time, uh, years probably, but we are already starting the work and we've been starting the work. Um, so those are things that are kind of on the horizon and I'm sure I'll be on multiple programs doing discussions on other things and, and be invited to do debates on these very subjects. Those are the main priorities I have right now uh, on my schedule. And I'm learning to say no a lot to opportunities. I just don't have time. Or like even when you invited me, I kind of put it off as far as I could because I knew I had so much piling up. Um, So even when I'm doing things, I'm kind of putting it off for a few months out so I can finish other things and not get caught up doing 100 things at one time. So. Well, I, I appreciate that you even responded to me. Uh, you know, I got a lot of friends in common with you, and I try to network and get to know sure. some of these people. And 
Uh, imagine this, Stephen. I've actually made really good friends out of it too. Uh, some of my hey. online, yeah, some of my online yeah. theology friends have been closer to me in my trials than some of the friends I grew up with. And uh, that's that's the body of Christ in action, if you ask me. Amen. So, Amen. Um, you know, sometime in the future, I know you're a busy man. I'd love to have you back on to discuss a little bit sure. more in depth textual criticism because of course I didn't I didn't put that in in this in today's podcast because I knew I know me. And I will spend four hours <laughs> asking you questions about that. So, but uh, I, I'm really intrigued about it. And, you know, God forbid someone who's just a faithful Christian, and then all of a sudden they get the study Bible, that God forbid, has a note on a text and it says, this isn't in all the original manuscripts or whatever. Uh-huh. And they're oh, like, yeah. what does yeah. that mean? So I would love to go over that and, and kind of explain that, yes, you can trust your Bible, but some things happened, and here's how we work around it. And here's how we trust the Holy Spirit and inspiration. But yeah, Stephen, thank you 100%. for your time. Um, dude, God bless you in your marriage and your ministry. That's all I got to say. And uh, till next time, everyone, it depends on how you look at it.